So first of all, I would not say that we have seen a cyber war at this point. We have not. The wonder of cyber is that it is a fabulous short of war weapon. We need to find those privacy preserving tech solutions that are commercially viable, that'll really serve as the free world alternative to the illiberal use of technology propagated by regimes like China. You know, right now, Mr. Putin is someone who's played a bad hand very well uh, for all of Russia's weaknesses and limits. He's had an outsized role in European security in the Middle East, interfering with American elections. U.S. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin told the council at last year's Global Security Forum, you should commit yourself to being a lifelong learner. You should never, never stop learning. And each year, to try to honor this goal, the Council brings the world's top leaders in global security to our audience at the Global Security Forum. Tickets for this can't-be-missed event go on sale this week. So we wanted to highlight some of the top moments, speakers, and quotes from GSF panels of years past in this special episode. This is State of the World, produced by the World Affairs Council of Connecticut. I'm your host, Amanda Jolly. And on this episode, we're bringing you some of our favorite discussions from past forums, with topics ranging from artificial intelligence to China's future global role. You'll hear from experts, including member of the Joint Chiefs and Chief of the National Guard Bureau, General Daniel Hokinson, first ever special representative to Muslim communities, Farah Pandith, New York Times national security and cyber expert, David Sanger, and many, many more. Before you listen to the episode or while you're listening, be sure to reserve your own ticket to this year's Global Security Forum on October 2nd, 2021. You can pick up virtual tickets or limited in-person tickets at gsf2021.com. And now, please enjoy the Global Security Forum Roundup in this special edition of State of the World. We'll open at GSF 2019, where cybersecurity expert Arthur House spoke with David Sanger, national security expert at the New York Times, on why cyber threats are posed to reshape geopolitics and what makes them the perfect weapon. All right, let's get into some cyber stuff. During the week, uh, acting director of national intelligence, uh, McGuire, uh, stated that the greatest threat uh, facing the United States is not kinetic warfare. Now, Connecticut, not Connecticut, but kinetic, meaning force, physical, you know, planes, tanks, uh, forces, and that sort of thing but cyber warfare. Now, that's a kind of a bold statement. I don't think it's shocking to anyone, but it, it is a stark statement. Um, and just looking, you mentioned Iran. The United States um, has had about, I know of at least three attacks uh, on Iran, Stuxnet, the uh, energy infrastructure, that recent uh, retaliation of the Straits of Hormuz. Uh, the Iranians have come against us in cyber a bunch of ways. I mean, the Bowman Avenue uh, Dam in New York, uh, Saudi Aramco, the J.P. Morgan Chase attacks, uh, Sheldon Adelson's uh, casino in, in Las Vegas, and so forth. So your book states of what you know are 200 state-on-state uh, -state cyber attacks. There probably are a few that even you don't know about. There, I'm assuming that there are multiples of that number I don't know about. Yeah. All right, I'm, <laughs> you're being modest. All right, we lack norms. When, here, here are two countries that have attacked, gone back and forth at least seven times. Uh, we don't have norms. We don't have intentionally accepted uh, international rules of engagement. When do these things become war? 
when do these skirmishes turn into a battle? Uh, uh, and we, in fact, when do they become an act of war? We, we now have two-way cyber engagements uh, going back and forth. And I wonder if you could comment on the two-way nature of cyber exchanges between countries. Sure. So um, a lot in that question. Let's try to unpack it uh, a bit. So first of all, I would not say that we have seen a cyber war at this point. We have not. The wonder of cyber is that it is a fabulous short of war weapon. That is to say that if you don't want to get into a direct conflict with the US military, and not many countries do these days, but you still want to try to undermine a society, take bits of skin away from them, make clear your influence, cyber is the perfect weapon. And that's why the title of the book is that. We may one day have a full-scale cyber war, but when we do, it will be, I suspect, as the opening act and a continuing part of a more general, more familiar war. What's this like? When Orville and Wilbur Wright first showed the airplane to um, a bunch of generals at College Park in 1909, the generals did not immediately think of this as a weapon. They thought of it as a vehicle for surveillance. You know, hey, this is great. We'll take this cool biplane. We'll put it up over the enemy troops. We'll see where their um, openings are. And we'll send in the cavalry. And it wasn't really until World War I that the Germans first and, and others then thought about arming the airplane, right? And there were skirmishes throughout World War I, just as there are skirmishes in cyber, as you mentioned. But I don't think that anybody here would argue that the airplane was a decisive strategic weapon in World War I. The war probably would have ended the same way and probably around the same time, even if there had been no airplane. In cyber, we're about where we were at the end of World War I with the airplane if you're just trying to put this in historical complex, right? We know the delivery system. We know it can be used to deliver weapons. But remember, it was another 25 or 30 years before we combined the airplane with a very different kind of weapon, a nuclear weapon. The airplane was the delivery system. And then it became a strategic weapon together. And you saw that at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. I am not arguing for a moment that you are going to see with cyber the kind of power in one particular attack that you saw with nuclear weapons. But as a distributed attack that could, that could completely cripple a society, we've already seen that. And the skirmishing you're describing, the day-to-day -day back and forth between US Cyber Command, the NSA, the Iranians, the Russians, the, the uh, North Koreans, the Chinese, that is the testing and the skirmishing that's happening as we all try to figure out the power of this weapon. And that's what's going on right now. Now, you mentioned two different elements of this. There were the Iranian attacks on us. <clears throat> Some of them were effective, even if briefly, like the, um, the denial of service attacks on the banks in 2012. Some of them were ineffective, like the um, effort to get into the control system of the Bowman Dam in Rye. Um, 
as an eight and 10 year old, I used to clamber over that dam after school. Uh, my mother would chew me out about it because she was afraid that the kids who were there were gonna fall into the dam, into the area, and she knew, but the Iranians didn't, that there's no water behind it. Not enough to flood your basement. So uh, if the Iranians had checked with me, I could have suggested that a, you know, a different dam might have been more effective for them. But it was an interesting first test. Um, they went after Sheldon Adelson's casino. Can you imagine anything nastier to do to Americans than to go after their <laughs> casinos? I mean, really, this is getting pretty bad. Um, why? Because Sheldon Adelson, who, as you know, is a big uh, conservative donor, uh, suggested at Yeshiva University one night uh, that if we really wanted to teach the Iranians a lesson, we should drop a nuclear weapon in the uh, desert in Iran and tell them that Tehran was next. The problem was there was a camera running, as there is one here, and it was on YouTube, and the Iranians watched it, and they said, hmm, Sheldon Adelson, desert, guy runs a casino. Be a shame if they all went in one day and discovered nothing turned on, which is exactly what happened. They wiped the hard drives, okay? Similar to what North Korea did with Sony when they didn't like a truly terrible movie that was coming out, uh, describing, uh, it, was a, it was a comedy describing an assassination attempt on Kim Jong-un. Um, were these acts of war art? I don't think so. I mean, Obama said at one point to his staff when they were revved up about the Sony attack, they said, act of war? They were trying to shut down a bad movie, right? <laughs> but what did that tell you? It told you that this weapon has got huge potential. And we have demonstrated that in our own offensive cyber operations. And it's our view at the times that we have an equal responsibility to both describe the cyber vulnerability of the United States, what you've been working on so well in Connecticut here, and the offensive strategies that the United States has to use this weapon, and the moments when we have used it. Because once you do that, you're on an escalation ladder that basically says using cyber as a weapon against a society is open game. And that's why we revealed Olympic Games, which was the code name for the Stuxnet attack on Iran. And it's why we've written so much about why stolen weapons from the NSA were used against Britain in the WannaCry attack. The NSA did not plan on losing those weapons. So this is a two-way conflict. And the trick journalistically for us is to try to make sure that all of you understand where we're headed with it. Ever wonder what Putin's succession plan is? At the Global Security Forum 2020, moderator Bradley Akiburo poses this question to Dr. Richard Haas, president of the Council on Foreign Relations. What is Putin's succession plan? Uh, well, the answer is there is none, as best we know. Uh, my hunch is Mr. Putin, as Bob Gates once says, plans to stay in power until he's carried out feet first. So that might be a six. I don't know if that's a succession plan, but that's probably his resignation plan. Uh, that he is there essentially for the indefinite future, or maybe the definite future. Uh, I think he's there until he can't function anymore. Uh, one of the hallmarks of authoritarian systems, and particularly ones that aren't monarchies, 
is that power, there's no concept of legitimacy when it comes to ruling and power, but it's fought for and struggled over every time. So Mr. Putin has usurped power. Uh, there's no acceptance of it in the positive sense. Uh, so my, my when, if and when he uh, were to uh, die or become incapacitated, I, I assume the, the stage is set for a struggle. And you know, he's created a kind of a kleptocracy, a small group of people who hold inordinate wealth, who essentially cluster around him. Now, whether he will be able to pass that on to another individual, I don't know. I am skeptical. Um, now, but all sorts of things could happen at that point. You could have another strong man. The idealist or optimist would say that that would be Russia could begin a transition to a real democracy as opposed to a faux uh, democracy. You could have breakdown of order. Uh, I don't even assume that the future of Russia as an integrated country is a, is a given, given the lack of a real economy, given that there's enormous chunks of territory that are under or unpopulated, given the minorities issues, uh, local nationalisms. So I think Russia's future, I think ultimately my guess is I haven't said this in public before, but let's, let's say it. You know, right now, Mr. Putin is someone who's played a bad hand very well uh, for all of Russia's weaknesses and limits. He's had an outsized role in European security in the Middle East, interfering with American elections. But I think where he will fail is in institutionalizing any, Russia, any future for his country. And getting to the question, I think he will probably fail in institutionalizing any succession that will be stable or lasting or legitimate. So I think it's quite possible if that's the case that Mr. Putin, uh, his legacy will be seen as a really negative one. That one day future people in his country and around the world will see him not just as this authoritarian figure who poisons uh, his political opponents, who hasn't created a modern uh, economy, who uses force indiscriminately in parts of Europe and the Middle East. In addition to all that, uh, he might be seen in, I mean, he sees the greatest tragedy of the 20th uh, century, the end of the, you know, the loss of the Cold War and the dissolution of the Soviet Union. I don't think it's inconceivable that he could be the, seen as the person one day who leads to the fragmentation of Russia itself. Uh, and so I think Mr. Putin's legacy, shall we say, is up for grabs. Beijing's global influence continues to grow. At the Global Security Forum 2018, this topic was addressed during a discussion entitled China on the Rise. In this next session excerpt, moderator Paul Buka, recipient of the Medal of Honor, talks with panelist Dan Murphy, executive director of the Fairbanks Center for Chinese Studies at Harvard, and Jim Holmes, J.C. Wiley Chair of Maritime Strategy at the U.S. Naval War College. He asks, in this modern age, what would a conflict between the U.S. and China actually look like? What does it mean to China when you use the word war and then win or lose? What is war's victory in this day? Obviously, they can't occupy all of the United States. They can't occupy all of China. They can't occupy all of Japan. So what is the definition of victory in a modern warfare? Well, I mean, it's a... Well, I mean, it's, we're always we're always uh, contending, and we're, we're quite right to do so. That China would like to win without fighting. I mean, this is this is what Sun Tzu, the great uh, Chinese general of the, the the Peloponnesian War era. Interesting how how much great thinking there was going on about uh, 500 BC. 
Uh, I mean, it's, it's, he, he describes this as the supreme excellence. Try to prevail through diplomatic means. Try to put your enemy in an impossible position so that he has no, ch has no chance to prevail at a cost acceptable to him. So that's, a, I mean, that's sort of motherhood now. And I've been, I would actually describe that as just routine statecraft. I would certainly hope that, uh, that uh, rational leaders in Washington and Brussels, whatever the case may be, would, would, would try to prevail without fighting because war is a dangerous thing. It's really unpredictable. We know it costs a lot. It, could, it can take unforeseen uh, turns. It can result in defeat. Even Clausewitz says you only probably stack the deck about 60-40 in your favor, even if you do everything right. So it's a perilous thing. And that's a, so to take it to take it to the far side of the war peace divide. China China sees things in terms of active defense. You look, if you you can actually look at the Chinese military strategy of 2015, in which, uh, which is the most authoritative statement out of Beijing about how it sees military affairs. They say this 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 concept popularized by Mao Zedong back in the 1920s and 1930s in wars against the nationalists and against Japan. This is the essence of how we look at military affairs. It's a, it's, a really, it's a really straightforward concept. It's basically, a, you would start off assuming that China is the weaker competitor. That's what China was in Mao's lifetime. China still has that assumption today. But that doesn't mean that, that, doesn't mean that you lose. If you're fighting in your own backyard and if you're, fight, if you're fighting against an adversary who's coming from thousands of miles away, such as the United States, you can actually do things to cause that stronger opponent to overextend, to weaken himself, even as you do things to try to cut that uh, force down to size as it's on the way to, to the battlefield. You do that, you, you, may equal, you may equal the, the uh, force balance by the time the U.S. forces get to the region. And at that point, you have a fighting chance of victory. It's the same playbook, uh, more or less, except with new technology and new implements that, uh, that Imperial Japan thought about uh, back in the 1930s. Cut the U.S. Pacific fleet down to size on its way, on its way west from, from Pearl Harbor and the west coast so that by the time it reaches the Far East, the Imperial Japanese Navy's combined fleet can come out and fight a victorious engagement and keep us, and keep us from uh, recovering the Philippines or doing whatever we were going to do. So again, it's all, it's all about assuming that you're weak but that you're going to win anyway, as weaker powers oftentimes do in history. I would just add to that that I think that one of the worrying things that I see in the U.S.-China relationship is, is uh, the security realm leaking into everything. Uh, yeah, so it's absolutely. now an, an explicit part of the trade relationship, whereas it, there is at least, at, least a, um, at least a facade that trade would be, would be insulated from that. We always said that the CFIUS process received no political interference. Can we really say that now? I, I don't know if we can say that as confidently as we could maybe 10 years ago. Uh, so, I wouldn't and, say it at all. I think, I think you're exactly right. <laughs> uh, uh, and, you know, we can look at all the different metrics that I mentioned before, and I think increasingly these areas are, are seen as, uh, as, as more and more relevant to a grander competition between the two countries. I don't know if that's in necessarily in our best interest, but that, that's certainly the trend. Uh, so I would just add that to what, to what Jim already said. Yeah, just I mean, in a sense, uh, the, the era, the era in which we, we've come to be kind of World War One centric in our curriculum, as this uh, era of Greek power competition comes back, and that's because there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, historical. Mark Twain, of course, who was, a, who was a resident of these parts back in his lifetime, famously said that history never repeats itself, but it does rhyme. If you look back at historical epochs, it rhymes really strongly with the era leading up to 1914, when Europe, of course, marched over the precipice in the war, but. Uh, but I mean, one one thing that one thing that uh, comes up when you study that era is that people people in that era thought that the age of globalization had put an end to uh, to armed conflict. 
it's I mean the the idea was being that trade policy, economics, the supply chain, and all that kind of all that kind of stuff raised the cost of geopolitical conflict so high that no that no sane leader would ever do it. But then, of course, the August 1914 rolls around, the guns of August ring out, and ultimately, ultimately, yes, the costs of, of warfare are obviously frightfully high in, 19, in World War I, but at the same time, you actually saw leaders actually uh, go into it uh, even knowing that. Violent extremism is both an international and domestic threat. At GSF 2019, Luke Kinetic of Power Africa moderates a discussion on global threats and rogue actors, featuring Farah Pandith, the U.S. State Department's first-ever special representative to Muslim communities and author of How We Win, and SAC Brian Turner of the FBI. First and foremost, it's an honor to be here with this panel, and thanks for everyone for taking time on Saturday to, to, to spend some time with us. Um, yeah, I've been in the FBI about 17 and a half years, uh, you know, continue to serve the country. And one of the things that still continues to remain uh, within the FBI is the number one priority regarding terrorism. Uh, terrorism in terms of protecting Americans from terrorist attacks, both domestic and international. Uh, so I just wanted to put that out there, uh, that this continues to be our number one priority. Recognizing that, uh, we've also uh, recognized the fact that uh, that threat has evolved. Um, it's been a while since 9-11. You know, that threat still exists where you have uh, terrorist organizations, foreign terrorist organizations that actually uh, plan and resource complex uh, attacks against the United States and its interests abroad. Um, but a subset of that has been essentially uh, something that's called homegrown violent extremists. Um, those individuals that are sitting within the, the confines of the United States who become radicalized. Um, those folks who are radicalized have no established profile, both genders, various age groups, uh, and they're radicalized for different reasons. That in turn um, pre presents a, a challenge that we have not only at the FBI but as the U.S. government uh, to try to continue to do that. So uh, just to kind of set the stage for the conversation, um, those uh, homegrown violent extremists are one of two buckets of threat that we deal with uh, in the last couple of years. The homegrown violent extremists, and then another term we use is uh, domestic uh, radicalized uh, individuals. So uh, I'll kind of throw that out there as opening comments, and then I'll uh, turn it over to my colleagues up here. I'm going to get a little bit um, serious about the 18 years after 9-11 and the quality of attention that we've paid on how people get radicalized, which is the work that I've been doing and been fortunate enough to be able to do uh, over both the Bush and Obama administrations. And knowing how uh, hard and fast we work to keep our country safe, uh, on the kinetic side, um, I have been extremely uh, shocked to see that 18 years after 9-11, we have not been able to move the non-kinetic to a place where we are uh, moving in a direction of success. The book, How We Win, is indeed an optimistic uh, title, but it's not airy-fairy. It, uh, it is based on the realization that there are solutions that are available and affordable right now. So when I think about uh, sort of how we look at the ideological fight, how do we make sure that young people, and that's actually what we're dealing with, youth, it's a youth protection position that we're taking. What are the threats we know? 
And what are the threats we don't know? In fact, what are we, prepare, what are we preparing for and what, what are we not preparing for? And so when I look at uh, our posture on the preparedness side, uh, we keep uh, saying the same things, we keep expecting our adversaries to be the same way, uh, and we keep expecting things to stay status quo. What do I mean by that? Uh, we did not quite understand that a, a group like the so-called Islamic State was going to be born and, and surge, uh, but we also uh, had wrong expectations about why young people get radicalized and the way they do. So we haven't put the kind of attention into that. We came very late to the game. I'm going to push back slightly on my colleague. Um, I don't look at the ideological threat from the position of international versus domestic. There's no such thing from my perspective. The us versus them ideology exists globally. We're sitting in a room with flags around the world. Millennials and Generation Z with a finger swipe are connected to each other in ways that I don't need to tell you. We just had a great panel with David and, um, and heard about the cyber threat. That connectivity means that ideology has no borders. So when we look at what we're facing right now, we're facing a global threat. We're not facing a domestic versus an international threat. We are seeing non-state actors learn from each other. So whether they're white supremacists or they're the so-called Islamic State, you are seeing them learn from the playbooks from each other and understanding how to build their new armies. That's the threat we know. The threat we don't know, and the thing that terrifies me the most, my work hasn't been around extremists that use uh, ideology based on neo-Nazis or white supremacists or identitarians. That's not the work that I've done. The work that I've focused on are non-state actors that use Islam to radicalize for their nefarious ends. So groups like AQ, the Taliban, Shabab, Boko Haram, the Taliban, that are looking at one dimension of possible new armies. And that's the de demographic of young people under the age of 30 that, that have some sort of affiliation somehow in their ident uh, I identity around being Muslim. And that number is huge. There are a billion Muslims under the age of 30 on planet Earth today. That goes to 1.2 by the year 2030. That's the threat we have not yet accounted for. What does that actually mean? So when I look at what we're, the, you know, the scope of this uh, discussion in terms of global threats and what we're facing, this conflict, the, the, the ideology stuff is very hard to put your hands around. It's very hard to understand. You can't quite connect the dots why something that happens in Trinidad and Tobago actually is connected to something that's happening, to, happening in Tajikistan because we as a government have not connected those dots. But if we step back and look at the threat profile for the world as, as it will be built demographically, uh, we are very far behind in our ability to uh, d not just build a strategy for what, where, where we are and where, where we must go, but the resourcing, the personnel, and the imagination for what is to come. At GSF 2020, General Daniel Hokinson, Chief of the National Guard Bureau, spoke with Moderator Major General Francis Ivan, Adjutant General of the Connecticut National Guard, about his new leadership and why it's a priority of the National Guard to make the branch more diverse and inclusive. Can you address any efforts to support diversity in the National Guard? And uh, do you see that as one of your priorities? And Frank, great point. And this is one of my highest priorities. And when we look at our National Guard, you know, we're across the 54, the 50 states, three territories, and District of Columbia. And at the lower level, at the lowest level of organization, 
we really reflect the diversity of the communities where we come. Um, but prior to me assuming the job, I actually had them look at it at all rank structures. And what I found is we're very representative at the lower levels, but as we get higher in rank, what we found is it's, we're not as diverse as our communities. And so my goal is to help identify where along the process of promotion or retention that we start to lose that diversity so that we can address that and create those opportunities because we want our organization at every level to represent the diversity of the communities from which we come. And it does take time. I mean, Fran, you and I have been around for a while. I mean, I'm on my 34th year of service. So what I'm trying to do is identify those lower levels and at every level so that we can build a diverse future leadership team for our organization. Absolutely. Yes, sir. So I really, uh, I think that I know here in Connecticut that we are, we are fairly representative across the board of the demographics of the state uh, with the exception of the senior leadership. And I know that we work hard every day at that and it will take time as you stated. So thanks for that comment as well. What are the United States greatest opportunities in the future ahead? In this next session, Dr. Asha George, Executive Director of the Bipartisan Commission on Biodefense, Kara Frederick, Tech Fellow at the Center for a New American Security, and Casimir Yost, former Director of the Strategic Futures Group at the NIC, tell Council CEO Megan Torrey at GSF 2020. What is the single greatest opportunity to advance security around the world? And I'm going to start with Asha. Oh, thanks. Um, <laughs> I think the single greatest opportunity we have right now uh, is to take advantage of everybody's motivation throughout the world to do something about COVID-19 and embark in, in something our commission is calling an Apollo program for biodefense. Um, the disadvantage of that title, I have to say, is that it implies that there's a moonshot to be had and that we're just going to get to one thing and then that'll be the end of uh, biological threats for the entire world and that that obviously is not the case. Uh, we're talking about multiple moonshots, I suppose. But that's what it comes down to for, for me. I think we have this huge opportunity. People are engaged. More people in the world know, um, know about COVID-19 to the level of, of expert than, uh, than we've ever seen uh, ever before in human history. Let's take advantage of that. We have this opportunity where people understand it. They are motivated to do something about it. They are moving money, which you know is important. Uh, they're willing to try and, and, and get us beyond just, oh, tomorrow's vaccine, uh, and get us to a point where we have a broad array of solutions uh, that, that come to us from science and technology, but other fields as well, um, that could help us uh, address this pandemic and all biological threats in the future. So uh, that's what I think. We should take advantage of the opportunity presented by everybody's being so enormously motivated by uh, what's happening with the pandemic right now. Excellent, thank you, Asha. All right, Kara, to you. All right, so uh, my opportunity is, is less comprehensive than Kaz's, probably more uh, focused and pointed like Asha's was, and that is uh, to find the privacy solution. Um, so uh, unlike Asha, I'll say we need to invest in the privacy moonshot. And what do I mean by that? 
I mean, uh, we need to find working together with private tech companies, the U.S. government, uh, and engaged citizenry, civil society, academics. Uh, we need to find those privacy-preserving tech solutions that are commercially viable that'll really serve as the free world alternative to the illiberal use of technology propagated by regimes like China, um, like Russia, like Iran with the internet shutdowns and whatnot. So what we need to do is basically lead on this, be the prime mover, um, but also help our freedom loving friends, um, you know, dissidents in Hong Kong now, uh, support them with access to the technology, uh, succor, um, you know, information sharing at times between vetted um, entities, sort of uh, making sure that we're making the world sort of, instead of China making it safe for autocracy uh, through technology, that we're making the world safe for democracy through technology. Um, and this privacy preserving technologies will, will really help with that. Um, again, it sort of starts here at home. We need to reinvigorate that commitment to transparency and openness. Um, I would say we probably need to have a national data protection framework. Uh, so the standards are clear um, on how both the government and tech companies use your data, um, how they're using the technology that they're creating. That, has done a lot of good in the world, but also is repurposed for um, ill really across the globe. Um, we need to draw on our democratic partners, uh, work multilaterally. Um, and I think, and I'll, I'll end on this, we, we definitely need to have a particular focus on what I call these global swing states. Um, the Brazils, the Philippines, the Indonesias, the Turkeys, um, the, the, swing, the states that have elements of democratic governance, India is one of them, um, but also have um, sort of authoritarian leanings, especially in the way that they've responded um, digitally to uh, the pandemic, uh, which is really, really interesting in terms of sort of adopting uh, the way China is sort of mandating these contact tracing, tracing apps be downloaded on citizens' phones, punishing people if they don't do it. Um, we need to convince them that there's a better way, and the better way is the democratic way. How do we do that? We create a better product that they want to use. So for me, develop that, that privacy solution, that privacy moonshot, and we can convince people to work with us and make the world freer and safer for democratic values. Our young leaders are our country's future. At GSF 2019, General John Allen, president of the Brookings Institution and retired U.S. Marine Corps four-star general, answers a West Point cadet's question on artificial intelligence, democracy, and authoritarianism. Moderated by Major General Michael Jones, former chief of staff at U.S. Central Command. How about this cadet right here? Uh, go ahead and stand up and get a mic to him. Sir, do you believe that democracy and AI can coexist, or will the existence and implementation of AI demand us to redefine what democracy is? Because if you have an algorithm that knows yourself better than you consciously think and can make decisions for you, and if you have ad campaigns that actively know your preferences and can manip manipulate you, is democracy really legitimate anymore? Thank you. Don't sit down. <laughs> what are you majoring in? International Affairs in Chinese, sir. Excellent. Very good. What are you, what are you going to branch? I'm hoping um, a branch detail of infantry to military intelligence, sir. All right. You know two things that's really important, so well done. Thank Good question. <clears throat> this is, now you can sit down. <laughs> and, and sit down quickly. <laughs> um, 
That's a great question because the whole issue of what we call digital authoritarianism is on the rise. And we really worry about that. Uh, one of the greatness, great dimensions of who we are as a people is that our society is wide open in many respects. Uh, that gives us the capacity for uh, interaction in ways we can't, could not have imagined, uh, uh, commerce, economic development, uh, freedom, freedom of movement, uh, both vertically in the, in the social context, freedom of movement in the linear context across the country. People can live anywhere they want to. Uh, we're an open society, we're a democracy, and that has made us, so many ways, the consequential power on the planet. Um, but it also has made us very vulnerable. And this is, once again, where the absence of norms and the kinds of laws necessary to control trolls and to control the bots uh, and to hold uh, either groups, people, or entities accountable for intentionally micro-targeting uh, through influence operations, elements of the population, hold them accountable for that. This is who we are. We're a nation of laws, and holding people according to the rule of law is part of what we have to do. Uh, I think we may have to ultimately uh, look closely at how information flows uh, it, within a democracy, and I'm not pr pr proposing that we preclude that or limit the flow of, of information. But I think we're going to start to hold people more accountable for the information that flows. And some countries that, uh, with whom we have good relations are beginning to flirt with the kinds of legislation to hold people accountable for fake news and deep fakes and the kinds of individual personal targeting that could influence uh, how you think about people of color or women or uh, some other politically, potentially politically charged issue. Now, flip that same coin over that you just said. I, so I do believe that democracy will remain viable. Just as democracy had to get used to roads and railroads and telegraph and television, et cetera, technology caused us to adapt our democracy in important ways. But we still remain a free people. We're going to have to adapt, and I think we can. But we have to have uh, a, a body of policy and a body of legislation that helps us to do that. Flip that coin over. I do believe that artificial intelligence will potentially accelerate illiberalism and the rise of authoritarianism, and in particular, those states that draw their power not from the consent of the willing, not from the consent of the voting masses, but draw their power from their capacity to control their masses and control their populations, AI has the capacity to provide extraordinary surveillance capabilities. So let's talk about China for a minute, since you're, you, you study China. China, if it is not, is potentially going to become the most potent surveillance state on the planet. Um, Kai-Fu Lee, who wrote the book uh, AI Superpowers, read that book sometime. It'll make your blood run cold. The Chinese capacity through their phone systems, their iPhones, if you will, and their applications to have access to every click of your phone Every message that you send, every financial transaction that you ultimately author, wherever your car goes, your, your license plate is surveilled. Uh, we know what you eat. We know where you go. We know what movies you watch. We know where you're on I, the, uh, the Internet. And the Chinese have created something, as, as you well know, many in here know, of something called the social index. And you get a number. And where that number is on a scale 
ultimately generates your access within society. So people with a high number get a passport. People with a low number, because they are considered uh, unreliable potentially, don't get a passport. Children with a high number, or families with a high number go to colleges. Some don't. Very, I just promoted a young officer to colonel recently who, in his National War College class, visited China with, with a segment of his seminar. And they were on a train from Beijing to Guangzhou. And as the train pulled out of the station, there was a long announcement, which the interpreter then translated to the people that, that basically said to all the passengers on the train, uh, I'll just boil it down, you better behave because if you get in trouble, it's gonna affect your social index number. There are companies in China, when you're asked to express yourself on a political issue, you can go to that company and it will give you the answer which is calibrated to give you a better return on your social index number than before. So I think AI will force us to have to think in different ways about our democracy, but I think our democracy will survive. And I think it'll probably be strengthened by it because of all the good that AI will do to our open society. But here's the challenge. It is how authoritarians can have greater surveillance control of their populations to accelerate the movement of some countries to authoritarianism. Here's the problem. In the developing world, where we are in constant competition with China in the developing world, when the Chinese come rolling in, part of their package for the strong people, strong men, they're always strong men. When they, when they come rolling in and they want to empower the strong men to facilitate Chinese interests, part of the package for development is a surveillance package. And if they come rolling in and they put in a 5G network, you ain't ever going to dig them out of that 5G network. So this is, once again, this is the issue of American leadership versus other leadership in the world today and whether we're willing to compete at a grand strategic level. So AI, it's going to be another playing field where we're going to have to compete. And right now, we are way behind uh, the authoritarians in that process. Yeah. Thank you, and Thank you for that question. And uh, I, I have to comment, that, sir, you might not have noticed this wave of dissonance that uh, kind of went across the crowd among our cadets when you talked about promoting a young person to colonel. Uh, that kind of threw a couple off balance there. Uh, well, I see a couple commissioned officers who are running for the doors. <laughs> So uh, audience, uh, as, uh, as I fully expected, you've lived up your expectation uh, asking those great softball questions <laughs> that you have for our guests. So give yourself a hand for, for doing such Thank a great you. job. <laughs> uh, and sir, I want to thank you for, uh, for being here with us today. Obviously, uh, tremendously insightful. Uh, and just want to give you the opportunity for the last word before we, uh, we adjourn for lunch. Yeah, we, we, uh, we as a great nation and a great people uh, derived from a great idea. Uh, we have a lot of challenges in the world. Uh, and governments will come and governments will go. Uh, this week I had occasion to be with a number of folks and we were pretty, given the news and other things, a little bit down. And uh, last night someone sent me a picture from Washington. It was a picture of a fellow by the name of U.S. Grant. And the message was, if you think we got problems now, think about what this general had to go through. Fought a war against a nation that was fighting to keep an enslaved people numbering in the millions. Fought a war to retain the 
structural integrity of the United States and the values that we stand for. Fought a war where hundreds of thousands of Americans perished in that war. So we got some problems today. We got some challenges today. I think our democracy is strong. You're seeing it playing out before your very eyes right now. Uh, it's worth having the deep view into history sometimes to ensure that we don't become so, as they say, close battle fixated uh, that we don't understand that we've been through hard times before and we're going to get through this and we're going to get through hard times and again, again, but it's because of who we are as a people and what we are as an idea and not where we are on the globe. So thank you. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. That was our special highlight reel of past Global Security Forum discussions. And we invite you to join us for this year's Global Security Forum on October 2nd, 2021. You can find out more information, including a speakers list, schedule, and tickets at gsf2021.com. That does it for this week's episode. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. For more, to join in future live discussions, and most of all, to pick up your GSF tickets, follow the World Affairs Council of Connecticut on Twitter and Instagram at CTWAC, or visit our website at ctwac.org. Today's episode was produced by me, Amanda Jolly, and Caroline Schaefer, edited and engineered by Khalil Rothman. Thank you for joining us for State of the World. Until next time.